Increased rates of abortion, adultery, sexually transmitted disease, and divorce are just a part of the sexual revolution's ugly legacy in our culture. Why have Catholics bought into this legacy, and how can the church help the culture chart a new course? Join us today as we talk about the fate and the future of Catholics in a post-liberation world with Mary Eberstadt, author of Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and today we'll be talking about Catholics and the sexual revolution. I'm joined here in our studios with our regular panelists. Uh, Dr. Regis Martin is a professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and Dr. Scott Hahn holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University. And our special guest today is Mary Eberstadt. Uh, Mary used to be a senior fellow at the, uh, the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, but is currently a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, she writes uh, numerous publications, including First Things, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The Weekly Standard, National Review, National Review Online. The list could go on and on. Uh, you're also an author of several books, including The Loser Letters, uh, A Comic Tale of Life, Death and Atheism. And the book we'll be discussing today is Adam and Eve After the Pill, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. Thank you for being with us, Mary. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's uh, great to be here. It is, it is so good. So uh, let's start out. We're talking about Catholics and the sexual revolution. Uh, really, what were some of the promises of the sexual revolution? Well, from a secular point of view, what people thought the sexual revolution would do is liberate women from the chains of their fertility, right? And liberate men and women from unhappy marriages and from being trapped for life in uh, those kind of arrangements. The sexual revolution was supposed to liberate children too, to make sure that every child was a wanted child. You remember that slogan. That's right. Now, what interests me is that from a perfectly secular point of view, using perfectly secular evidence, you can demonstrate, thanks to social science, that none of these things came to pass, mm. that in fact the opposite came to pass. Take, for example, children. What happened there? Is it the case that now every child is a wanted child? No. Abortion rates went up right alongside contraceptive rates. That's just one example of the unintended fallout of all of this that I think some of the cheerleaders for the revolution honestly didn't see coming, you know, back when all of this got started. Right, right. So there's a lot of promises that were made really were, were false and, and broken promises. Um, is this something that really is only a Catholic thing that we're worried about <laughs> uh, or is this... Yeah, I love this. Um, no concern about the sexual revolution is not just a Catholic thing. Uh, we can correct the historical record on a couple of points, and, and these are things I really do wish people knew. For example, all of Christianity was united on the teaching against contraception, as the theologians would know, um, up until practically the day before yesterday <coughs> uh, in historical terms. That is to say, up until 1930, when the Anglican Communion made the first exceptions for contraception, until that moment, all of the churches were united. Uh, John Calvin condemned contraception. Martin Luther condemned contraception. 
And they did it in terms that make some of the popes look positively timid. Yeah. So, you know, the general idea was that babies were good, creation was good, interfering with creation was not. Now, you can uh, dispute those claims, but you can't dispute the historical fact that all of Christianity was united in this teaching until relatively recently, as is traditional Islam, as is traditional Judaism. Mm -hmm. So no, this is not just a Catholic thing. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you had to zero in on, on the real beneficiaries of, uh, of the sexual revolution, I, I suppose it would be predatory men, right, who were set free from what you describe as the bondage of having to take responsibility uh, for the women they have uh, impregnated. Uh, so yes, I do we're the real recipients yes. of this great revolution. Well, I wouldn't say you personally <laughs> resist. <laughs> yeah, how but, well do you know me? <laughs> yeah. um, but I would say that uh, the, the biggest danger of the sexual revolution is that it has empowered the already strong at the expense yeah. of the already weak. Right. Yeah. We are living in a world that uh, Thrasymachus described in Plato. This yeah. is the world in which right. the strong rule. Right. It's not the children who are calling the shots. Right. It's not yeah. the single moms who are calling yeah. the shots. It's yeah. the, the strongest, the already predatory. At the, at the same time, we have to acknowledge that uh, you know, when men become more predatory and barbaric, it isn't really an empowerment. I mean, it's an enslavement. Right. And right. so, I mean, the brutalization of men, let's be honest, you know, yeah. does not really liberate us or empower us or make us right. the beneficiaries. Yeah. It just further blinds us, you know, yeah. to the uh, to the enslavement of passions. And, and, so, and also, access to the pill has not exactly liberated women. Uh, you point out that no. paradox, that running paradox. On, on the one hand, uh, they have all the advantages that, that, that one would expect, and yet they're miserable. They're profoundly, acutely unhappy. What, what a yeah. strange disconnect. This, I think, is very compelling because the evidence comes in uh, from all over for that proposition. If you make a habit of reading Tony magazines and blogs and websites, you, The Atlantic and Time and places like that where you get enlightened secular women writing about themselves, and you read what they say about themselves, it's fascinating. I, I have an entire chapter about this because what do they talk about? They talk about how marriage is over and it's impossible to find a, a stable mate. They talk about uh, raising children on their own with mm. donor sperm. Mm. They talk about giving up on human relationships. This, I submit, is not the language of liberation. This is the language of defeat. This is the language of people who have given up on other human beings. You know, I, it reminds me that, uh, you know, you're pointing out that rational empirical study shows that the results are the, the opposite of what they were supposedly intending, that kind of liberation and all of that. But it indicates to me then that the initial urge, the desire, was not purely rational to begin with. You know, it, it's reminiscent of what Paul says in, in Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they become fools. So when we, when we, I mean, the fear of the Lord is one thing, but the aversion to God is another. Mm -hmm. And what was described in, you know, in Romans 1 is that when you turn away from God, you do so in pride, you claim to be wise, but you end up in folly. Mm -hmm with the results that are almost exactly the opposite of what you intended, you know? And this is something that is, again, empirically verifiable. Yeah, yeah. Well, when we look at the, uh, the, the, the sexual revolution, um, I, what scandalizes and, and, and is so damning is that so many Catholics bought into this. 
you know, that there were so many Catholics who saw this. Uh, why do you think there were, Catholics in general would have been more susceptible to the kind of the promises or, or you know, bought into these lies? I don't know if they were more susceptible, or, but I think the, the basic idea that you could have sex without consequence is a very appealing idea. I mean, it's a very easy sell. And lots and lots of people bought into it who are now having second thoughts. Lots of people who lived through this are now having second thoughts, and they're not all Catholics either. That's right. So I think, you know, the revolution became like a giant party that's gotten out of control, and now it's two in the morning, <laughs> and somebody has to call the police, <laughs> yeah. and nobody wants to be the first one to leave, yeah. and they don't want to rat on anybody else, yeah. but everybody knows that something's gone terribly wrong. Yeah. And I think yeah, that's Somebody has are, to come sure. forward and take ownership of, of this mess. It, it is curious that, that in the sexual sphere, uh, this notion that you can do things with impunity mm. is pretty widespread, and yet we don't extend uh, that sufferance to other areas. I mean, when you say things, you've got to take ownership of, of the consequence of having said them. I mean, freedom uh, is not in a vacuum. Everything has uh, an impact, uh, a repercussion. Why in this particular area do we get a free pass? Mm. That's a wonderful question. And just for example, uh, we don't get a free pass when we, when we eat, right? We all know that everything we eat has consequences for us and that there are increasingly sort of stigma and prohibitions attached to certain kinds of things. You can be a vegan, you can be a vegetarian, you can have all kinds of moral concern about eating organic and so on. So that's, I think, a very good example of your point. That yeah. In other areas of life, we, we don't give ourselves carte blanche to right. do whatever we yeah. please. There's yeah, well, you talk about this about in this. the book, I, I, I think, uh, that, that, that we've become wonderfully fastidious about food. But when it comes to sex, we're, 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 we're just pigs, yeah. uh, we're swine. Uh, and, and that disconnect is, is really disconcerting to observe. I, I sometimes go into Whole Foods and I'm struck by how uh, sort of uh, heart-stoppingly perfect their bodies are. Everybody is, is just beautiful, gorgeous. They care deeply, obsessively about their appearance. And yet, I, I suspect that in their personal relations, they're, 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 they're committing all kinds of uh, damaging behaviors, and yet they don't see that dissociation. Yeah. Why is it? Why is sex so powerful? Well, I actually think those two trends are related, and mm -hmm. one of the, in one chapter of the book, I argue that over the past 50 years, uh, because of the sexual revolution, we've seen this sort of migration of morality away from sex and onto food, where it used to be people were Kantians, if you were, about sex. They, had, uh, they believed in absolute standards, whether they observed them or not. They believed certain things were absolutely right and wrong. Um, and about food, it was thought that it was just a matter right. of taste. Yeah. And in the course of 50 years, we've seen a complete inversion yeah. of this way of looking at things because now there are all kinds of people who are not laissez-faire about food issues at all. And right, it's not right. just that it's their choice to be, say, a, a vegan, and I'm not knocking the vegans, I like the vegans. <laughs> um, but it's, it's not just that it's their choice, it's that they think other people ought to live the right, same way. Right, right, yeah. But you're right, these are the same people who don't make that connection to sex, and I find that very interesting. Yeah, it shows, though, that it's not just being fastidious, it's being profoundly inconsistent, because yes. the same person who says, the government has no right to legislate what I do with my body, you know, backs the mayor of New York City for prohibiting a certain size soft drink, you know? <laughs> yeah. right, or at right. the same time, you know, 
drugs, you know, we know that if I just do heroin with my body, it is still illegal. That's right. Uh, but I think you've identified the key, that it is an, it's an obsession that people want to deny or suppress, and as a result, it sort of comes out sideways, you know. It comes out in terms of food, or it comes out in terms of uh, diet or exercise. They're overcompensating for something that they won't acknowledge, and so they end up transferring these absolutes into places that don't really where they don't belong the same way as they do with sexual so purity, true. as it were. And it's so, it so true. When, when you mm. look at the, the, the sexual revolution as it came about, what was some of the initial reaction or responses from the church uh, in reaction to the sexual revolution? Well, I think the most important response, which was not uh, the first response, but was, of course, Humanae Vitae, uh, 1968 encyclical affirming the ban on birth control that, again, had gone all the way back to the earliest church fathers and had been shared by other Christians as well up until 1930. And um, I didn't witness it personally, but my understanding is all hell broke loose in the Catholic Church when right. yeah. uh, Humanae Vitae appeared because there were a lot of people who wanted that teaching to change. Right. Uh, there were other people who were glad that the Catholic Church was the last institution right. standing on this right. subject. Right. Um, there's been a lot of confusion about whether it, this is an optional teaching. Right. You know, there's a lot of dissent in the American Catholic Church, especially. Uh, a lot of people haven't paid attention to the teaching and have wanted it to go away and are apologetic about it. Yeah. What interests me about this is that as a, a researcher who deals with secular sources, I'm not a theologian. I read that document several years ago, and it is what put me on this path toward hmm. investigating the sexual revolution because I had no idea how true it was. Right. And then yeah. I realized that here we have the most globally reviled document right. <laughs> of the yes. last 50 yes. years. Right. Is there any document you can think of that people like to mock more than Humanae Vitae right. across right. the planet? Right. And yet, if you were looking for a blueprint about what the future would look like once the sexual revolution took hold, you can't get a better one. That's right. So we have an enormous paradox here, and that's the central paradox of this book, and yeah. all the other ones just radiate outward from yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, Paul prophetically had seen the future, and it didn't work. It was a disaster, and he was exhorting people to turn away from it, recoil from it uh, with horror. But instead, like lemmings, we embraced it and fell into the sea. You know, ironically, he was mocked for two things. Pope Paul VI in Humanae Vitae, you know, first of all, renews the teaching of the church against artificial contraception, birth control, and he's mocked for that. But then he also predicts the consequences of right. rejecting right. this teaching. And it's abortion, it's euthanasia, it's many other things. And then he was mocked for being a gloom and doom prophet, you know, and, and he was right on both counts. That's right. And yet it's so hard, you know, because you either, you either subject your will to the truth that your intellect informs it about, or else you invert that and make your intellect sort of defend the things that your will craves, even right, if it's disordered. Right. Yeah, and I think that's precisely the reversal that has taken place and the pride that prevents us from saying, you know what, you know, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. It was fun while it lasts. We better get back to the absolutes. That's not going to happen. It's like spinning out of control. So I think the empirical studies, the sociological, the psychological conclusions that we reach Will those be enough to stop people and say, well, you know, it was fun while it lasted? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think so.
Yeah, yeah. What we're talking about is a lot of truth that people don't want to agree yeah. with. People don't want to see it. Uh, but Pope Paul VI made it very clear. But as have been echoed throughout the ages, and now we're finding much more research that's just confirming he was prophetic. He was right on the mark. We got to follow the design of the Creator. Um, we're talking about uh, Catholics and the sexual revolution. You're watching Franciscan University presents. Stay with us. I'm a member of Theta Phi Alpha Women's Fraternity here at Franciscan. We're a national fraternity with a chapter on campus, and one of our core values is actually purity. One of our symbols is the white rose because of its purity, and we really think it's very key to just call each other on. It's very easy to stumble in this world, and I think that one of the most important things we can do for each other as sisters is to call each other on to purity. Chastity, as I understand it, is a virtue which applies our sexuality. It means taking our good sexual desires and placing them under the demands of authentic love. So basically it means self-mastery in my relationships. I don't need birth control, I have self-control. I'm Dan McNally, I'm a theology major here at Franciscan University. I love studying theology, it's my passion, but I mean, I love learning too. You walk out of the classrooms, you want to know more, you don't want the lecture to end, so I mean that's the really great thing about being a part of the student body is you can continue to discuss outside. It's not just studying to, to make a grade, it's, it's learning to you know, improve yourself, and not just through your own personal prayer or your own personal study, but through community, because that's what we're made for. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Franciscan University presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan. Um, today we've been talking about Catholics and the sexual revolution uh, with uh, Mary Eberstadt. Uh, Mary's the author of Adam and Eve After the Pill, uh, The Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution. Um, Mary, this is really a great, great topic and so important for us today to be, to be discussing. Um, as we're talking about the pill, what are some of the, the damages uh, that we have seen uh, that you have researched uh, from the pill on the relationship between men and women? Well, as we were talking earlier, anecdotally, there's a lot of evidence in women's literature, uh, literature written by and for women, that a lot of women out there are really unhappy. Uh, as far as social science, uh, one of my favorite things to cite is a study that was done a few years ago by two Wharton economists. So this is, you know, the gold standard. That's right. Um, and this study looked at women's happiness, not only in the United States, but also across the Western world over the last 35 years using survey data. And the title of this study was The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. Hmm. Because what the authors said was, look, we don't understand this. Women have lots of things now that they didn't used to have, including access to contraception, hmm. that ought to be making them happier, and yet they're not happier. They're in fact less happy than they used to be. So hence the paradox. Now I submit this is only a paradox if you expect that the sexual revolution would make women happy. And the most obvious way of reading that study is that something about the way they are living uh, is making them more miserable. And that, that something probably has to do with what economists would say was the flooding of the sexual marketplace by the pill. Lots of competition out there, a lot less likely that you know, men were going to settle down with any individual woman. Yeah. And now we've had this drama play out through many, many millions of lives and many decades. And I think it's 
certainly defensible to say that's where the unhappiness is coming from. Yeah, I, I would uh, make two comments. Uh, on, on one level, it has uh, allowed men to objectify women, treat them as things, units of sexual pleasure, uh, you know, sort of like a, a, an empty carton of cigarettes. You've consumed it, you now discard it. It's just junk, garbage. But at a deeper level, uh, this is the second point, there is a, an element of self-loathing uh, I've, I've noticed on the part of women because it's not just a function of what they do, the pills they buy, but of who they are, uh, mm. a function of their being because in effect they're saying to themselves, something is wrong with me. I need these pills because I've got this diseased uh, organ. I've got this, uh, this biochemical process called ovulation and it's unhealthy and I have to suppress it. I mean, there must be a, a certain self-hatred that would license uh, the taking of something for a condition that is not disordered, not pathological, uh, and yet, nevertheless, you have to expunge it, suppress it. That, that's a terrible kind of admission. Well, to the, the first point, your analogy between throwing away a person and throwing away a pack of cigarettes, I would point out that if you throw away a pack of cigarettes, you're going to get a ticket. <laughs> so yeah, and pretty sense, soon you won't be able to buy them. <laughs> that too. But to the point about self-loathing, you know, I, I would say it's just that there's a lot of confusion out there. Um, I hear from young women a lot that uh, it's their, their parents very often who are asking them to postpone marriage, who have put them on the pill when they were 16 years old. Yeah. It's their parents who want them to pay off their student loans. You know, there are economic realities out there that are also confounding them. Yeah. So I, as a friendly amendment, I don't think it's so much about self-loathing as about massive confusion yeah. brought on by decades of lies and myths about this subject. But, but certainly uh, there's a loss of heroism, a, a refusal to recognize my creaturely status, uh, to exercise limits, you know, abstinence, uh, uh, self-mastery. Instead, you, you buy something that will just uh, vaporize a perfectly natural uh, biochemical uh, process. And, and that communicates, I, I think, a certain certain dis-ease, a malaise with the self that reaches below the moral level. It, it's metaphysical. No, I think that these two points are very compatible, though. I, I think that the confusion doesn't rule out or exclude self-loathing. It just leaves you in wonder as to why it is I don't feel comfortable with myself or right. my cycles or right. my body. You know, right. And you know, it, we go back, you, know, you were talking in the first segment about in 1930, the first of the denominations that broke from the tradition Nothing. of Luther, Calvin, and the Catholics as far as contraception. You know, at the Lambeth Convention, the Anglicans broke ranks, and only under extraordinary circumstances yes. would right. it be allowed. And then within 50 years, every mainline denomination has embraced these axioms of the sexual revolution. And yet what's so interesting to me as a, as a professor is that in that same time period from 1930 on, you had over in England J.D. Unwin, whose massive work on sex and civilization showed that civilizations only emerge where sexual discipline is observed. And then at Harvard, of all places, you had Sorokin, yes. you had Zimmerman, you had top-ranking family sociologists who never appealed to revelation or faith, but just to empirical statistical studies that show that monogamy and fidelity lead to trusty family civilizations and social stability and relative happiness. And yet, flying in the face of all of that statistical objective truth is the sexual revolution. You know, 
That's why I think there's almost this overcompensation to be more rational than now when you're doing something that you know deep down is profoundly irrational and disastrous. Yeah, Yeah, that tradition you mentioned is fascinating, and part of what I try to do in the book is resurrect some of these great secular thinkers. You know, we don't understand how far down the road toward suppression of speech we've actually gone until we read something like 1964, Patiram Sorokin, founder of the Harvard School of uh, Department of Sociology publishes a book based on popular uh, essays first done in Life magazine, and the book is called The American Sex Revolution, and it is nothing but a Jeremiah against what's going on in American society because of contraceptive technology, and it's one chapter after another predicting uh, increased rates of family breakup and you know, so on and so on, all the things that we have seen. And he was a Harvard sociologist, and people actually talked about this. That's right, why it was yeah. in Life magazine. Right, yeah. Can we have that discussion today without right, being, right, yeah. you know, the, the blogosphere is laughing stock yeah. du jour? Vilified. Or, you certainly you know, can't at Harvard, but you, you can't even have it in Georgetown either. either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I, that was viewed as, as, as a distillation of, of wisdom. This was the conventional wisdom in 64. Incidentally, the same year the Beatles uh, invaded America, and among thoughtful observers, uh, these guys are crazy. Crazy. Yeah. This is not music. Uh, this is just noise, mayhem. Uh, we've come a long way, baby. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're attacking the Beatles. You're stepping on. Yeah, yeah. We, we may have some challenges. <laughs> I might attack <laughs> Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? <laughs> but when we've talked about how it's really undermined happiness, and there's even research that backs that up, from Wharton to even the, the founder of sociology at Harvard. What are some other damages uh, that the pill has caused for men and women? I mean, there seems to be. Well, it, yeah, let's talk about men. You know, I gave a talk recently, and a young man came up afterwards. He made, I thought, a very subtle point. He said, you know, the focus is always on the damage to women. But, mm-hmm. said this young man, what about the damage to men? Men have, generally speaking, more trouble making a connection in the first place. Yeah. So when this thing gets in the way of uh, them and a relationship, it's, it's even easier for them to walk away. And I said, yes, that's a very good point. And so is the point that that's why it's even more dangerous that they retreat into pornography. Right. Which is what a lot uh, and they are the chief consumers of and pornography. If you want to see the proof of why that is bad and why the argument that it's a victimless crime is wrong, just one proof that is sufficient in itself is what people spend to get out of that addiction. Mm. Right. I that's once so heard two economists argue this point. They tried to uh, figure out how much was being spent every year in America to get out of pornography addiction, whether through online programs, Mm -hmm. counseling. Um, I've talked to therapists who've talked about this. And that is proof of damage right there, that these guys think they are unhappy enough that they will go way out of their way to try and break this addiction. That's severe damage. Once you've been pornified, uh, as it were, the stain is almost ineffaceable. Yeah. yeah, your treatment of tobacco and pornography in this book, I found to be yeah. so illuminating. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah. right. it, it, it's just one of those case studies. It's like, wow, it, it not only reveals a paradox, but a massive blind spot. Yeah, yeah the argument goes like this. Um, Fifty years ago, smoking was ubiquitous. Yeah. Uh, and the people who objected to it were a pretty small minority. And this was true not only in the U.S., but across the Western world. And I'm sure you can remember, there was a time when you could smoke on airplanes, you could smoke in right. hospital rooms, right. you could smoke pretty much anywhere you wanted to. And the people who didn't like it just sort of 
took for granted that this would be a, a fact of life. But what have we seen instead? We have seen a massive turnaround in Western public opinion about smoking. I mean, now you can't smoke in an Irish pub. <laughs> you can't smoke uh, just about anywhere in New York City. Um, and uh, there's been a gradual uh, re reversal of the trend toward acceptance, such that it is now one of the most stigmatized behaviors you can engage in in public. Yeah. Now, I'm not bringing this up to stigmatize smokers or to suggest that these behaviors are morally uh, uh, equivalent in any way. I'm bringing it up because smoking goes to show that you can take a behavior that everyone thinks is there to stay, and you can uh, change over the course of some decades the minds of many millions of people. Now, how did this happen? It happened because there were people who kept pointing to the record of harm, uh, saying that smoking does this and smoking does that. And at first, there was great resistance to believing this. Um, anyone who's ever smoked wouldn't want to believe this. That's right. But Little by little, the people who were uh, showing up the evidence won the day. Mm. Yeah, I know. So I don't think it's impossible right. that it's something like that could happen. You, you can put the genie yes. back in the bottle. Genies yeah. do go back in bottles. Right. That's and right. That's, and it's, right. A, it's a lie that they don't. Right. right. And when people who are cheerleading for the sexual revolution or are saying that pornography is a victimless crime, uh, when those people say you can't turn back the clock and you can't put the genie back in the bottle, the example of smoking refutes them. Yeah, you've got secondhand smoke now, and everybody's battling. Secondhand porn. You know, yeah. it isn't as though broken marriages and broken families and broken kids, but also sexually transmitted diseases at record rates. Yeah. You know, there's such a disconnect between, you know, the acceptance of this and the vilification of all the diseases. It's like, it's cause and effect. It's That's not right. rocket science. That's right. Right. So your, your, your sense is that there is hope potentially to change yeah. our culture, that we shouldn't, uh, you know, sometimes we look out and see the big behemoth of the sexual revolution and think it's, take it for granted that it's, it's done. You, you think that there is the possibility of turning back the tide. Well, yes, because I think people are rational creatures as well as moral creatures. Yeah. Uh, you know, I hear uh, from young women a lot on campuses, not this one, uh, that um, one of their biggest problems in life is that most of the young men they know have had experience of pornography. So getting back to your point about self-loathing, yeah. this makes these young women feel as if they can't possibly right. compete. That's right. Yeah. And add to that the fact that pornography means you don't have to do the difficult work of actually right. dealing with another right. human and being. Talking to them. Yes. <laughs> right. yeah. And you can see what a problem this is for, for, I think, for the young especially. I have a friend who's a psychologist and a counselor who also describes the effect that it has on young men. You know, if women can't compete, men discover they can't love. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a profound and debilitating effect on both. You know, when Satan tempts us, he takes away the sense of shame, and then when he comes back to accuse us, he gives it back a right. hundred times, and so we feel, you know, again, self-loathing is sort of, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's a sexually equalized phenomenon, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, it, it robs uh, uh, relations of, of, of love, of romance, of glamour, of communication. Uh, yeah. the, the woman is reduced to an object of, uh, of mere physical desire, and uh, a terrible pathos, I think, surrounds uh, uh, those relations. And, and I think the, the victim, uh, in, in terms of, of man, uh, is, is very palpable and, and, and not often commented upon, that he's unable really 
to relate to an actual human being. Uh, he's only comfortable when he traffics in cyberspace, and, and yet these creatures are not real. So the woman is competing with nothing, That's an illusion. Right. He's stuck in this cave, Plato's cave, and he doesn't want to come out. Or if he wants to come out, he's powerless to escape. I, I think only grace can reach in and set free that, that soul. Yeah, that is so true. Uh, we've been talking about Catholics and the sex sexual revolution. Uh, in the next segment, let's talk about how we can rebuild our, our culture. Uh, you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. I like to think that the goal of marriage is to lead the other person to heaven. And we simply cannot do that by treating one another as objects. I don't want to feel used. No one wants to feel used. And that's where I think artificial contraception has it wrong and natural family planning has it right. If men and women are willing to dominate their bodies, manipulate their bodies, and reject the natural fertility of their bodies, what else are they going to be willing to do with their bodies? Moreover, if men and women are expected to reject the natural fertility of their bodies, what else are they going to be expected to do with their bodies? Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program comes forth from the Communication Arts Studio right here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, our students who are operating the cameras and the equipment, uh, our regular panelists, our uh, theology faculty here at the university. Uh, we've been talking about Catholics and the sexual revolution, um, but let, let's, let's kind of plot a course forward, if you will. Uh, it's really becoming more evident that these promises, these broken promises, are leaving people empty. Um, you know, there are so many ways that we're seeing this. What do you see when you look at this as we kind of look at how can we rebuild our culture? What I see that looks most hopeful is that um, people in their 20s <coughs> seem to be the easiest to reach on this. Mm. If you look at what's happened on campuses across America, including secular campuses, there have been a, a striking number of what I would call renewal movements, not all of them religious in nature. There's been pushback about things like Sex Week, um, <clears throat> which I hope I don't have to explain on the air, but seems to be a pretty popular phenomenon on some of the secular campuses. Uh, I think there's also room for hope in the fact that uh, younger people consistently are more anti-abortion than, say, baby boomers. Um, so there are facts to work with on the ground there that I think are, are very good and that I see as evidence that the harm of the sexual revolution has percolated down to at least some reasonable young minds. You're uh, amazingly optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and in a way, it belies uh, the findings of, of your own study. Uh, you you uh, identify uh, uh, the university as ground zero 
uh, in the sexual revolution. You call it toxic you. Yeah. And it's a dangerous place, especially for women with the hookup culture, the binge drinking, uh, the assaults. We're talking about rape. Uh, I mean, most parents, when they send their daughters to college, uh, don't, don't think, well, she's likely to get raped uh, in the first week. But in fact, that is more and more the case. Yeah. That's another example of where I think bringing uh, the statistical side of harm to public yeah. attention is a good thing. There have been um, massive studies of this phenomenon <coughs> of uh, date rape on campus. And some people want to just dismiss all those figures and say, well, let's say he sh said, she said, and we don't really know what's right. going on. Right. Yeah. I've looked at those studies. They can't be dismissed. Essentially, if your daughter is a freshman, or a sophomore, she, is, uh, she has about a one in eight chance of being assaulted. If she's a junior or senior, she's not going to be. And uh, I think the studies really hold up. They've been dismissed by conservatives and even by some religious traditionalists, but yeah. I think they are for real. I think some American universities are actually toxic. The point is, if you were a parent, wouldn't you want to know about right. those statistics? Wouldn't you yeah. like to know about the campus that you're sending your child to? I don't think a lot of parents want to talk about that or think about it because they're in denial. They haven't worked for the last 20 years to save up tuition uh, only to have to worry about what happens every Saturday night. That's right. But I do think that little by little this kind of evidence can get through. I do think that your book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, is you know, perhaps the single most effective remedy for parents who are at least open to being convinced. Because, I mean, this diagnosis with a dispassionate analysis that is highly effective, precisely because it's, it's not religious. You know, it really is a kind of empirical, historical narrative. And uh, when I read this, I, I was so grateful that my daughter went to Franciscan University. <laughs> you know, and I only have one out of six kids. You know, I've got five boys and one girl. You know, but the, um, the fact is, to diagnose an illness is so essential to convince somebody that they're really sick, but to actually cure it. I mean, that I think is much more of a monumental task. And I think especially because there's still a lot of false cures that are being, you know, bandied about out there. Uh, you know, the idea that really, you know, the opposition and the guilt that we feel, these are the last vestiges of a Freudian superego that we have not really fully liberated ourselves from, you know, get over it, you know. Um, Parents especially, get over it, you know, and, and if you won't, we'll help your kids get over you, you know. I, I think, though, that at the end of the day, the sociological, the, 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 the historical evidence, as important as it is, will not prove to be enough. I mean, the natural evidence has now become a mountain range, like the Rockies, but the supernatural grace that human beings need in these circumstances, I think, is indispensable. It is not an option. I mean. It isn't that people are going to suddenly just be converted because they hear the natural law proclaimed effectively for the first time. They're going to need divine mercy. They're going to need supernatural grace. They're going to need to know they can fall into the arms of an all-powerful, all-loving God who won't condemn them, but who alone can heal them. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you do this. I mean, it's indispensable, but at the same time, I'm so glad that we have the church and the popes and the bishops and all of the encyclicals and teachings and so on. Yeah. As, as well yeah. as the sacraments. That's right. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with Scott. It, it does seem to me that your diagnostic skills are really impressive, uh, uh, and the way that you marshal the evidence, uh, it's, uh, it's undeniably uh, brilliant. It's irreplaceable. But there's a tendency, I think, that we might easily fall into a kind of platonic fallacy, thinking that 
that uh, virtuous knowledge. If I just tell people what the hell's wrong with their lives, they'll know what to do and they'll make the right choices. When in fact the evil is located in the will, it's not a function of, of the intelligence. They know they're sick and maybe the sickness has to grow considerably worse before they're ready for the sort of remedy that we have in mind. And Scott's right, if that remedy is to work, it has to reach into the supernatural order. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, when we talk to people who are, are listening or are watching us now, uh, their parents and grandparents, they're, they're wondering how do they talk to their kids uh, about contraception? How do they talk about pornography? Um, and there obviously has to be both a natural and a supernatural kind of uh, intervention, if you will, going on. Uh, what would you recommend for them? How would you uh, speak to, you know, help us speak to young people today about these two issues? Do you, what would your approach be? Well, I think they have to understand that this, these are not just negative teachings. It's not just a list of no's. It's a list right. of no's that are actually yeses to a higher understanding of the human being than oh. they have and than many of their friends have. So I think accentuating the positive is, is one way to go there. And you're doing that too. I mean, I, when you read this, you get a sense that love's calling is to, lay, is to raise us up. And I also want to say that it's not just parents who need to read this as the single most effective guide. I think pastors of souls, priests and yeah. deacons, and especially bishops, because when you read this, you're going to be empowered to, to proclaim the gospel. You're going to be able to show what's going on. And then conversely, the fact is that we've never needed Christ as much as we do right now. Yeah. We've never needed the sacraments, the church, the saints. We've never needed the supernatural aid that we have, and we've always had, but we've never needed it as much as we it's do true. now. It's true. I hope there's ammunition in that book of the kind that you describe. I, I mean Quite. there to be. Um, you know, I, I do think uh, that we are all facing, especially the theologians among us are facing an enormous problem here, <laughs> besides the sexual revolution itself, which is what it's done to so many millions of people. Yeah. The Christian story is a story that begins with a baby, and it's a, a story of a protective, loving father. You need to be able to communicate that story at a time when you're seeing millions of people who don't know a protective, loving father, who, who, yeah, who don't, don't understand. Yeah, who don't live in a holy family. Yes, right. you're asking people to understand uh, the Blessed Mother, um, right. who have been taught to regard birth itself as an act of choice, not as an act of do to me. Well, as people for whom Madonna is a pop star and not the Mother of God. I mean, how do we reach people like this? That's true. But there's just elemental confusion out there. There are extra obstacles to understanding the fundamental Christian story here, because here, of the sexual yeah, revolution. You're right. Yeah. Here's an example, what we might call the locus classicus, the first lady, uh, the wife of the president, a good woman. You know, you know, Eliot speaks of a decent, godless people, uh, their only monument, uh, the asphalt road, and a thousand lost golf balls. Uh, the, the first family is like that. They're good people, decent instincts, and she has championed this cause against obesity, and yet she's clueless when it comes to sexual obesity. I mean, not, not that she's doing porn, but she's not exercised against it. And the bully pulpit that her husband could, could exercise, occupy, uh, remains silent. This is not an issue. They don't care about this. How do we galvanize people like that? Because they are the leaders. They inspire millions of people. I mean, he was so charismatic, he got himself reelected. 
Yeah, and you're right in pointing out the fact that there's a healthy family that's intact and it there's is. a faithful yeah. marriage, right. at least judging by appearances, which is what Americans generally do. Right. And right. so we can affirm that and build upon it and at the same time point to what more needs to be done and what more could be done precisely by those voices. Well, we, we have both a, a challenge from a supernatural and a practical realm. You brought up, Scott, earlier just about the pastors and the, and the, the bishops. Um, and, and I think about the, the, the challenge that they have uh, preparing young couples for marriage. Um, and, and sometimes I, I remember talking to a, a, a friend of ours who really came back into the church, although she was married, baptized, everything in the church, really didn't come to a full appreciation to it much later. And she lamented that no one ever told her about the dangers, the damages, both spiritual and physical, uh, to the pill. And she was mad. She was mad that the, the priest didn't share that with her, that nobody had the guts, because it's not an easy topic to bring up. Yeah. Uh, but we really need to, uh, whether we're parents, grandparents, priests, whoever, uh, there, there are so many people that are just never getting the reasons. And I right. think we have to speak to both head and heart uh, on a very, very um, uh, seminal issue of our day. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is powerful. So, yeah, I had a student who told me that her pastor would never speak about <coughs> contraception from the pulpit because it would only offend and disturb and upset people. And of course, it might compromise uh, the collection uh, when, it, when it circulates. He needs the money, and so he doesn't want to disturb the comfort zone. But he's not being a priest. He's not being a prophet. This isn't true, though, I don't think, for the younger priests. Correct. And the yeah. newer bishops. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm seeing in the seminarians that I've been teaching over the last 10 years, yeah. uh, the John Paul priest right. phenomenon, right. but also now the Pope Benedict priest <laughs> phenomenon, and that is yeah. these young men are eager to... Uh, to learn how to communicate with right. love, and it's the truth of love, even right. if it's easy to hate because it's so demanding. They're on fire. Yeah, yeah they, they really are. are. Not all of them, but right. more of them than we've seen in a right. long time. Right. Well, how, how have you seen the church kind of approach us in a better way in, in recent days? Have you seen that, that change in, in how the church is, is teaching on this issue? Uh, yeah, I think the vitality you're describing among some of the younger priests, and this is not to knock the older priests, yeah, yeah, right, uh, yeah, but the vitality you're describing is part of what I'm, I'm seeing in the, in the non-priest part of that same population. So yes, yeah. I, I think there is a lot there. I think people have learned. Um, I also think, and this is a very peculiar way of making the case for optimism, but I think that there is something going on in the world that will force a reconsideration of the sexual revolution, including among perfectly secular people. And that is the crisis of the Western welfare state. Yeah. As we all know, it dominates the financial pages. Uh, it is perhaps the largest political crisis in the Western world today. What does it consist in? It consists in the fact that there aren't enough people to support the modern welfare states of Western Europe and perhaps also of America. And why does this matter? <clears throat> because this is fundamentally a family crisis. This is a crisis brought on by the sexual revolution. Right. Yeah. And I'm not saying people should turn around their thinking on the revolution just in order to get more taxpayers for Western Europe, right. but what I'm saying is that is an example of how everybody can see the effects of this thing in their own backyard. That's right. And these are not good effects. It's why your 25-year-old is having trouble finding a right. job. But th this helps us underscore, however, the, the irrational roots of the sex revolution. And it can help us to predict the irrational response. Yeah, there are signs of hope, and I affirm those. You know, and if it doesn't justify optimism, at least it opens the door for supernatural virtue of hope. At the same time, you recognize then, okay, what is the response? They're, they're stepping on the gas 
for gay marriage, you know. And so what is the evidence or the empirical proof that the response to this is rational? I see it speeding up in the, con in, in the same direction. I mean, I hope you're right, and I hope we can squeeze the toothpaste back into the tube, but at the end of the day, I think what we're dealing with is a, a collective bad conscience that tends to overcompensate. It won't affirm the, the major sin, and so it will do you know, the, the lesser sins. Uh, as Chesterton said, you know, what happens when people break the big laws? Well, they get lots of little laws. And I think we're going to get lots and uh, lots more of little laws as to how the sexual revolution will be allowed to redefine the definition of marriage, but also uh, discrimination for those who embrace the traditional. I mean, it's weird how traditional morality is considered weird, but I don't see it stopping. Right, yeah. We've been talking about the Catholics and the sexual revolution uh, here on Franciscan University Presents. You won't want to miss our highlights and summation in the next segment. Stay with us. Far from a celebration of human sexuality, fundamentally the sexual revolution is a despair over human sexuality. It's a despair over our ability to love, a despair over our ability to be loved, and deep down a despair over our human dignity that, that we should be loved. Uh, so the sexual revolution hasn't given up on the truth of human sexuality. It simply relegates it to the domain of a fairy tale, something you might want but you're never going to have. So it tells you simply settle for less than what you were made for and what you really want. Just take what you can get here and now and give up on everything else. My name is Joseph Frelich. I'm a chemistry major, biology minor here at Franciscan University. I love the atmosphere, just completely centered around the Catholic faith. When I play soccer, when I'm in classes, everything is, has that same Catholic attitude. Myself and a few other chemistry majors have the opportunity to work with top scientists in order to combat neglected diseases. I was able to connect my love for chemistry and also my love for mission work by synthesizing chemical compounds. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Franciscan University presents. We've been talking about Catholics and the sexual revolution with author Mary Eberstadt. Um, this is our time for our wrap-up, Regis. Could you uh, lead us uh, off? Yeah, I have a, a couple of things uh, I, I would want to uh, leave the uh, the viewer with, uh, uh, beginning with uh, unstinting praise for you and the book you've written. It's uh, it's marvelous. It, it's brilliant and uh, full of wit and, and wisdom and just uh, incredibly uh, uh, trenchant and I hope uh, you sell lots of copies. Uh, uh, the other thing is I'm, I'm sort of haunted by those dead babies. Uh, you touched on that in the last segment that because people aren't having babies we're not really able to support this massive welfare system. Somebody has to be alive to subsidize it and there are 55 million dead babies. I mean that, that's their, their absence is a kind of haunting presence, a kind of specter. Where are they? Uh, they're not here. Uh, they're with God. And, and that, I mean, that is, is a, a kind of injustice that I don't know how we can uh, uh, remedy it uh, or, or compensate for it. And, and then finally, I, I like your thesis. It is very arresting, this notion that, that, that the, the second biggest event after Eve uh, swallowed the apple was the invention of the pill, uh, contraception, that that has had at least as catastrophic an impact as that first uh, uh, calamity uh, in the garden. And everything is subordinate to that. 
because it drove a wedge between uh, life and love and sex. Uh, it, it sterilized uh, sex, which means by implication any indulgence of sterile sex is as legitimate as, as when straight people do it. So gay marriage is, is perfectly, uh, perfectly all right. We need to countenance it. And, and I like uh, how you argue that it's really only a footnote uh, to this larger uh, uh, chapter of the sexual revolution. So I, I think that's good to relegate it uh, to that status because the main chance uh, is the sexual revolution. Th this is just a byproduct of it. And, and the fact that you know, gay people can't generate life, I mean, sooner or later, that's gonna dawn on the rest of us, that they're not doing us any good. You know, maybe there's something really disordered about this, you know, fundamentally unhealthy. And, and if so, books like yours uh, will have uh, helped spark that revolution. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Regis. Scott. Yeah, I, I read this and I couldn't put it down. And I read this and did something that I don't usually do. I emailed my kids and suggested they buy it. I also bought copies for friends. And uh, I wanna just reaffirm the fact that this is the single most effective book. I mean, a lot of books are out there to show that pro-choice is really bad. The, the culture of divorce is catastrophic. You know, uh, the demographic decline is also problematic. Uh, but what I always hesitated to do was to kind of trace it back to what deep down I knew was the, fa the, the, the actual factual cause, and that is the birth, you know, the birth control pill. And it's not, it's not a reductionistic thing where everything is caused by one thing, but one thing is related to everything. And uh, this really makes it easy to make the case that uh, if, we, if we roll back here, there, and every, but we don't go back to this one issue, if we don't go back to one encyclical, if we don't go back to the one thing that most people don't want to go back to, we're not going to go forward. Uh, and so, you know, it's like a one-two combination. The left jab sets up the right cross for the knockout. This is the best left jab there is. I mean, because it, it empowers people to proclaim the gospel. You're not a theologian and you're not proclaiming the gospel explicitly, but you're setting us up to do that so that if the church can use a resource like this, people are going to be prepared to acknowledge their need for deeper graces than they ever imagined they would need. And I'm grateful for that. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Scott. Mary, would you like to share? Thank you for the kind words and thoughts. Um, you know, in considering optimism and pessimism, uh, I keep going back to this word inevitability because that's what the defenders of the sexual revolution, the cheerleaders for the sexual revolution claim for themselves, right? That this is inevitable and never going to change. And that is a dangerous word. If you actually look at history and you look at the movements that have invoked that word on their side, Marxism prominently, mm. Freudianism, which is on the way out. Um, I don't think that uh, I would put money on any social movement being inevitable, not from a secular point of view. And I think that the people who do don't understand that the rest of us are rational folks watching this and able to make up our minds sooner or later about uh, the damage that's being done. <clears throat> I also think other grounds for hope include the fact that there is some of that kind of rethinking going on. I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. On the 50th anniversary of the pill, Raquel Welch, of all people, wrote a kind of second thoughts piece on the CNN blog, saying that, uh, you know, as someone who had obviously participated in the revolution as a, a sex symbol, um, 
that on reflection, she didn't think it had been a good thing for the world. Mm -hmm. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, in a British newspaper, the writer A.N. Wilson had a very long essay uh, about exactly this, second thoughts about the sexual revolution. I can see more and more of this to come um, because people are rational creatures and on that I try and rest my case. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. Yeah, yeah. It might be too little too late, but I hope <laughs> it comes. <laughs> right. Well, well, Mary, thank you for being on our show today. Thank you for thank you. Uh, really equipping us uh, with, with some great ammunition uh, for this battle. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program, we have a, a download uh, for you. Uh, it's available at faithandreason.com. Uh, uh, Catholics in a post-liberation world. Um, Mary's done a, a great job both in her book and in this download. You can also just contact us to get this. Um, we are all dealing in our families, in our communities, in our parishes with so many people who don't understand the church's teaching on contraception and pornography. Now, uh, we need to be skilled uh, both in speaking to the head and to the heart uh, with the truth of the gospel of life. And uh, we need to do it with compassion and we need to do it with regularity. Uh, whether we're a priest, whether we're a mom, whether we're a brother or sister, a grandmother, youth minister, uh, a lay minister of any kind, it's really our obligation to reach out and share uh, this message. And, and, and in this, you, you see a lot of natural uh, arguments that we can make and share with people they may not be aware of. And then we need to reveal and show them the truth of the Catholic Church's teaching, really the theology of the body, uh, and share in such great uh, beauty uh, the love that God has called us to. And we have to do it with, uh, with gentleness, patience, and really seeking out. As, as Eve uh, took the, the apple, we really need to seek the patronage of the, the new Eve, of Our Lady, uh, in, in trying to speak to a world that's headed to a path towards destruction. Uh, we need a lot of help in this arena, and, and we need to call upon Our Lady. Uh, Franciscan University uh, is trying to form the students who are going to transform the world. And I want to invite you uh, to be a part of that mission. Uh, possibly by uh, getting your degree here on campus or through our distance learning and online education. Uh, maybe join us uh, for one of our summer conferences or a pilgrimage to one of the holy sites. Uh, we are uh, also starting a new endeavor in the last year uh, to launch a, a website called faithandreason.com. Uh, Mary's, uh, the download that we talked about here today, a uh, talk that she gave here when she was on campus, and Scott and Regis and so many others giving you wisdom and insight uh, that, that you really can't find elsewhere. Uh, so check us out on faithandreason.com. Uh, stay with us until uh, we, we meet again here on EWTN. Uh, this has been Franciscan University Presents. Until next time. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381, or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven. 683